Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We are, we're going to start Hebrews chapter 10 today and take the first 18 verses, which lead in then the back half of Hebrews 10 is the is the fourth of the five warnings that Hebrews is built around. So it'll be a really good, good study next time. Uh, but the sufficiency of Jesus. So the, the first 18 verses, when you really look at the book of Hebrews, it closes out from Hebrews 1, technically, all the way to this point, closes out an entire theme and section of the book. And then it starts a second one, here in verse 19, which we'll pick up next time. So the Hebrews, the sufficiency of Jesus. And what I want to remind everybody about is Jesus alone is sufficient, but as you read through these 18 verses, there are some really important concepts that we've got to really dive into and lean on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us everything out of it. It's, it is it can come across as there, there are some confusing verses. So we need to rely on the teacher, right? We got to rely on the Holy Spirit to teach us everything. So I'm trying to get in a better habit of doing this. Before we start, I'm just going to pray that real quick because as, anytime we open up God's word, we need to remember this is a spiritual exercise, not a logical one. And so we need to impart the Holy Spirit on all of us in, the, in this room to teach us everything. So Lord, as we come before you, as we look to study everything in your word in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, God, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you, God, that you have given us the Holy Spirit that indwells us to teach us everything. And Lord, I pray that you would sit here with us, fill this place with your Holy Spirit, and teach us your word. God, give us exactly what you would have out of this time together. And we thank you for this opportunity again, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so remember, Hebrews is built on these five warnings. And in our outline, it's, we're still in this new and better priestly covenant, which really goes through a little bit more of chapter 10. And we've been studying this a lot in chapter 7, 8, and 9, about how Jesus offered a better sacrifice for it was once, provides better promises, and opens a sanctuary for all. It was one time open forever. And then after that, at the very end of chapter 10 and going into 11, we'll get into this, what we, a lot of people call the hall of faith. It's, it's what is faith? All of chapter 11 is just all about faith and looks back on the Old Testament saints and what they did in response to God's word. And there's gonna be a lot for us out of that. And then it closes with chapter 13. So remember the book of Hebrews, it's built on these five warnings and we've covered three of them and then next time we'll cover the fourth. So what I want you to notice is that each one of these, like we've been discussing, is a pattern. The warnings build on each other 
and it's a process that the believer goes through that they start to drift, their, their heart starts to get hardened, and then they fail to mature, and then what we'll see in the fourth warning, they start to, to act out willful sin, essentially, which leads ultimately to apostasy and the danger of refusing Jesus. And all those warnings in Hebrews, they're here because Jesus is going to build a kingdom. And as we're going to see today, each of us is in a continuous, permanent state of sanctification. That's what God has in one of the verses today. And as we're in that permanent state of sanctification, your responsibility when God sets up the kingdom is dependent on your obedience now. And just think about it. It's, it's like an employer and employee, right? If, if they can trust you with something, how much more are they going to keep giving you? It's that same concept that Jesus is giving you something and he wants to see, how can I trust you with this? Okay, and then out of that, I'm going to give you more. And you see that a lot just in through all throughout the Bible. So remember the wilderness sanctuary, it had limited access, but our heavenly sanctuary now has unlimited access for everyone because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's because of his blood. Remember last week we studied his blood a lot that you have complete access at any time. And that access to the throne room of the universe remains open for all eternity. It's not just a one-time limited opportunity. It means when you and I are raptured or we pass on from this life into, another, into the next, that throne room is open for us forever. There's not ever going to come a time that Jesus says, no, you can't come in here now because he alone is sufficient and his sacrifice is sufficient. So think about this all the way back in the beginning. God knew that by creating man that we would get ourselves in a predicament that only the death of God himself would suffice to close that gap. So he did it. He knew that by breathing life into Adam and raising him up out of the dust of the earth that there would be a time that only his death would be sufficient to bring us back into communion with him. So what I want to do is start, sometimes as we go through these verses, when we just start going through them one by one, you can kind of lose the feel of the whole package here that we're covering today. So I want to start by just reading Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. It's not that long. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every single year, every year it just says. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, 
neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which we will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, Will I write them and their sins and iniquities? Will I remember no more? Now where remission of those is, there is no more offering for sin. And so that's what we're going to cover today, the sufficiency of Jesus. So back in Hebrews 6, the third warning, remember, was very difficult regarding what happens to Christians continuing to live in sin. Remember, as long as these two things are continually perpetuating it's impossible to return one to repentance. So in between that warning and the fourth warning that we'll pick up after Hebrews 10:18, there are three chapters, seven, eight, and nine, that are all about the priestly role of Jesus. And God puts those three chapters right in between the third and the fourth warning to show you how to break those chains of, of bondage in your life for sin. So he's giving you the answer, which is Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. You alone go into the throne room. He'll take that off of you and break those chains. And you don't have to live in continuing sin and then go into willful sin, which is the the fourth warning. So he is our high priest is the answer. So in verse one here today, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. See, the opening word for here, it means that this is a continuing message from chapter nine, which was all about the blood of Jesus. So because of the blood, for, therefore, wherefore, the law. So the Greek word here for a shadow of good things, it means an image cast by an object in representing the form of that object. So think of it as like a faint or pale shadow, not a defining one. It's one that maybe, I don't know how many of you make uh, shadow puppets with your kids at night when they go to bed. Mabry and I do that a lot. We'll grab a flashlight and just do shadow puppets a lot. But it's like, it's this pale kind of shadow. And depending on where the flashlight is, it depends on how big the image is or not, right? It's kind of that concept. But the Greek word for the image here, so a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. That word image is the image of the Son of God, which true Christians are transformed. It's the likeness not only to the heavenly body, but also the most holy and blessed state of mind, which Christ possesses. So it's the very image. It's the, the all these sacrifices in the law were a shadow of what was needed but they were not the very image of it. They didn't really show you. They just showed you the the blurry picture of the need for a savior. 
they didn't show you the absolute who the Savior was and who, who he was going to be and how he was going to take all of that away on your behalf in the law. Now, all the prophecies surrounding after the law showed that and put some clarity on it. But the law provided this blurry picture of you and I needing a Savior, a Redeemer. That was it. So in verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. So continuing from verse 1, If those original sacrifices could have made one perfect, then they would have ceased. But they never ceased. They were offered repeatedly, some of them daily, some of them yearly, some of them at certain feast days. They were always there. So the repetition of the sacrifices shows their insufficiency. And that's why the the title of this message is The Sufficiency of Jesus, because his was once and for all on one day alone and never again. So the sacrifice of Christ, our Messiah, was totally sufficient. It closed that great divide. You know, you and I were standing on an auction block being ransomed into slavery, and Jesus was the only one that could come forward and take your certificate of debt, which we're going to talk about kind of towards the end of this message, take your certificate of debt and stamp it paid in full so that you could walk free off that auction block. He was the only one. And his, his sacrifice, it was sufficient then, and it's still sufficient today. It will never, ever not be sufficient. And you don't have to add to it, and frankly, you can't take away from it. You cannot work your way to salvation, thus you cannot work your way out of it. And that's a key. Okay, if, if you couldn't work your way into it, it's not by works that you can lose it. So just think about that. In verse 3, But in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year. So the Holy Spirit's emphasizing, remember we talked about Yom Kippur, it's the Day of Atonement. It was a yearly sacrifice by the high priest. So despite it being offered every year, year after year, it never accomplished the complete atonement. There there remained this gigantic divide. And the divide could only be bridged by the death of God himself. It took that, took that much holiness and righteousness to bridge that divide. I think you and I will probably spend an eternity maybe wondering what it cost him. And, and we, you don't have, you don't, you, there's no way to grasp that right now in our lives of what it cost him to bridge you and I into the, into the throne room. It was, he had to go to the cross himself. He had to come as a man, take on a body that was prepared for him, which we're gonna look at in a second. And he had to suffer everything on our behalf. And why that blood paid it all for every human being from Adam and Eve until the end, we're going to spend a long time just trying to figure that out. There's something metaphysically there that none of us can understand right now. But he did it to break you from those chains of, of sin bondage. And when you re- recognize that he is our high priest, like we studied in, in Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, and if he paid for all of it to forgive you of it, that means you don't have to live in any of it anymore. You don't have to. You're not a slave to that anymore. 
He can break all of those chains free, but he's not going to do it without your permission. That's the key. God does not do anything that you don't allow him to do in your own life. You are still a sovereign being with free will. So if you want to hold on to something, he may convict you and give you warnings and cry out to you, just like he did to Pharaoh, remember? But ultimately, like these warnings cascade, he has to let you proceed down that road. So my, my pleading to you is don't go that route. Go and submit yourself before the king and let him take it off of you. So in verse four, it, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So in the Old Testament, remember, sins were simply covered. They were never fully purged and removed. And the Hebrew word, kapar, it liter- in the Old Testament, it literally means to cover, purge, make an atonement, make reconciliation, cover over with pitch. It's the same word that God used to Noah when he was building the ark in Genesis 6.14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark and shalt pitch or cover it within and without with pitch. Now, when you, not to get off on too much of a rabbit trail, but when you study that, why did God have Noah cover the inside of the ark? He would only, to make it watertight, you'd only have to cover the outside, but I think he covered the inside, maybe, perhaps, so that the ark would be preserved. And you've seen, I don't know if any of you watch those History Channel shows where people are going all over the world trying to find Noah's ark, and they think they found something that turns out not to quite be it. But if he really covered it inside and, and with inside and out, it would preserve it. And can you imagine in the end times if they actually found Noah's Ark, what a testimony that would be to the world that what God said was true all along? I think that would be amazing. I, don't, I have no, no biblical scriptures to back any of that up other than what God said in Genesis 6.14. So don't leave and go say, man, Matt said that the ark's going to be found in the tribulation, and I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it would be cool if it was. I mean, can you imagine the world going, whoa, and it matches exactly the specifications from Genesis 6 and beyond? That would be incredible. So, but the point here is that the ark was covered, just like in the Old Testament, sin was covered. It was still there. The ark was covered. The gopher wood was still there but it was never removed. And that's the point, that's the word that the Lord is using here. But with Jesus, it's not just covered, it's removed and purged. That's the difference. So that's an important concept here in Hebrews 10, verse four. So in verse five, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. See, there's not a single animal in the Old Testament that willingly went to be sacrificed. Not one. Not one animal raised their hand and said, hey, I'll do that. That sounds like a lot of fun. They were drugged there, right? And they were slaughtered to make a, an image and a shadow of what's to come. But Jesus, however, willingly offered himself out of his eternal love for all of us. I mean, he stood up off his throne in heaven and came to earth in a body that according to Hebrews 10:5 the Lord had personally prepared for him and he embodied that flesh and willingly went for you and I that is amazing and we do not talk about that enough as as a global church but his willingness to do this the passage this also begins to quote Psalms 40 
verses 6 through 8. So these are the, the passages here. Sacrifice and offering thou did not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. We're going to dig into that in a minute. Bird offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. So this is, not, this is probably not what you're thinking. The word here, so this is all from Psalms 40, verses 6 through 8. But mine ears hast thou opened. The word here in the Hebrew is karah, and it really means digged. It means pierced. And this, is, this gets into an Old Testament truth that's called the bond slave or bond servant or doulos in the Greek. It's called the doulos. And it's linked to being a bond slave. So the instructions to become a doulos, they're carried in two spots in the Old Testament, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15. And they're linked to the Lord's deliverance of, for the children of Israel from Egypt. And that's what he says in Deuteronomy 15, 15. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing today. See, you were a bondman, but the Lord thy God redeemed thee. From Deuteronomy 15. Okay, let's look at these instructions in Exodus 21 about a bond slave. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So when you were a slave as a Hebrew, you had six years to serve, and the seventh, six is always the number of man, seventh year you were set free. You had paid your indentured slavery, okay? If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. So your family was set free also after that six years of service. But if his master have given him a wife and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. So notice it's under the, the free will of the slave. He's deciding, hey, I've paid my debt, but I don't want to leave my master's house. I want to stay here and I want to serve him still. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the post, the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl or digged, dig his ear. And he shall serve him forever. See, this is the bond slave. And so what they would do, it was a sign of your allegiance to the master. So you were set free but if you chose to be a bondsman or a bond slave or a doulos, a bond servant, you would go, they would pierce your ear with this all. It was like a stake. They would drive through your ear and you would wear an earring to show your allegiance to the master that although you were set free, you were choosing to serve him forever. And that is what we are to be as the church. You and I are to be a bond slave to Jesus. You've been set free, but you are willingly choosing a life of indentured servitude to Jesus. And that's what Jesus did. He modeled that for us by serving the Father, 
by willingly coming down and dying on our behalf. So that's how we're to be. Remember, Jesus showed us the organizational chart of the church when he washed the disciples' feet in John 13, 5. And after that, he poureth water into a beacon and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. See, Jesus set the organizational chart for the church right there. The head of it was going to serve everyone and wash their feet. That's how we are to be. We are to be a servant. And so when you look in Romans 1.1, James 1.1, I could have listed 200 verses here. But when you see this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, that word in the Greek is doulos. It's a servant, a bond slave, a bondman, an indentured servant of the one that spoke him in existence. Same with James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now that's interesting in James, that word there, James, it's actually Jacob, it's Yaakov. And so you have a book of the New Testament that's named after Israel himself, Jacob, who was renamed Israel. That's why the whole book of James is to the 12 tribes of Israel, which is just as a side note. But we are to be bond slaves to Jesus, complete, incomplete liberty and freedom, but willing in service to our king. That's how we are to be. And that's how we're to be in the church. That's where, how we are to be at our jobs, our communities, our families, with your spouse and your children, right? You've been set free, but don't act like you rule your household with this iron fist, right? You are to be a willing servant to your bride, exactly like Jesus is to us, his church. You're to model that for your spouse. And so at the end of it all, who is serving God? You go to all the way to the end of the book, Revelation 22, 3 and 6, and in verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants, his doulos, shall serve him. In verse 6, and he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants, his doulos, the things which must shortly be done. What I love about that in verse six in Revelation 22, everything prophetically that God wrote out from Revelation 4.1 at the rapture, come up hither to the church, from 4.1 on is all prophetic. And it culminates every Old Testament prophecy that was written about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But at the end of the book, who is all of that written to? It's written to us. The Lord God of the Holy Prophets sent his angel to show unto us the servants, the doulos, the things which must shortly be done. See, he wrote all of that for you and I to have understanding of it. He didn't write it and send it to his servants to go, let's watch these guys try to figure this out. There's gonna be so much confusion and disagreements and pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever, rapture, Jesus' second coming, or are we meeting him in the air? What's going on? And it's all because people, the church, for the most part, has not relied on the Holy Spirit to illuminate and teach it to them. They've tried to teach it under their own logical mind, and it's, again, it's not a logical exercise. This is a spiritual one. When you pick up this book to study everything that is awaiting you and I in the future, you better be leaning on the Holy Spirit or else you're going to be as confused as everyone else out there. 
And that's what it takes in order to unpack this that is the very blueprint that spoke the universe into existence. Would you think that the, the words in Hebrew and Greek that Jesus is the word, right, from John 1.1, 1, 1, so if he is the word and it spoke the universe into existence, I think it would be kind of complicated to understand probably. And it's going to take time, right? A lot of people, when they start off on this journey, think, well, I've been doing it for three months and I'm not any better, so I'm just going to give up. It's not, it's not about time. It's about intentionality. And what you're seeking after is your relationship with Jesus, not head knowledge. And the Lord will unpack all of that for you. But the whole book of Revelation, that's why I was so passionate about us doing the, that as the first book as a part of New City Church, is because the whole thing is for us. It's for us to understand and when you see everything that's coming up, like what the world tried to do in 2020, you don't look at it and act out of a spirit of fear. You look at it and you act out of strength and truth and God's word and say, I know how all this ends. And you know what? We're not going to be here for this. And so I'm excited to see that it's on the horizon, which means we're just that much closer to going home. So in verse 6, in bird offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. So remember verses five through seven, the Lord points out what God considered the final once and for all acceptable sacrifice. The willingness to lay your life down and serve God is what he desires. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, he had no pleasure. Think about that. A third of the Torah is about sacrifices. And yet in all of it, he wasn't excited. He had no pleasure in that. For the children of Israel, because what he wants is your willing sacrifice to him. And that's what you and I are to be, is a living sacrifice to God. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than that of the fat of rams. See, he wanted just obedience. And that's all he wants from you today is obedience. You are to be a living sacrifice, obediently serving God. And that is to be first and foremost in your life. Otherwise, you are forsaking everything else. And it's once you are that, everything else in your life cascades out of that. Your relationship with him, your marriage, your children, your job, your community, how you walk in patience, in peace, you're trusting in him, you're growing in the power of the Holy Spirit to lead you in the right way, and complete, complete obedience is what he wants, not serving the flesh any longer. In verse seven here, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Now that's a quote from Psalms 40, verse seven, like we looked at. And one of the greatest journeys you can go on in your life is to discover for yourself that the entire Bible speaks of Jesus. The whole book, the volume of the book. That is not a quote that David is talking about himself out of Psalms. That is a quote of Jesus himself speaking, saying the entire thing speaks of me. That's why in Genesis 8, 8, 4, and the ark rested on the 17th day of the seventh month on the mountains of Ararat, that date is there because that's the very date that Jesus walked out of the tomb thousands of years later on the 17th day of the seventh month. 
And so Noah walked out of the ark and his new beginning on planet earth was on the anniversary in advance of our new beginning in Christ some thousands of years later. That is not by accident. Jesus wrote that detail in there and every one of those details speaks of him. Every one of them. And I'm telling you, it is the greatest journey you will ever go on in your life is to discover how does this speak of him? The one for whom we have to do. Because you're gonna spend an eternity in the throne room with him, you better get to know him now and figure out how does it all speak to him. So in Revelation 19.10, this is also one reason why I love prophecy so much and why the vast majority of the church avoids it, I have no idea. Because how would you... As someone that is, that is up here sharing the word with, with you all every week, I would be amiss and totally heartbroken if we left you and let you go home in fear with not knowing what's going on in the world. It would be, it would be a, a tragedy. But in Revelation 19.10, the reason to study prophecy, and I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou doest not. The angel is speaking here. I am thy fellow servant of thy brethren, that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, Jesus, his testimony, every prophecy in the Bible speaks to him somehow. That's why it's so fruitful to study, because if you don't study it, you are frankly probably eliminating at least half the Bible. Some people will say a third. In my mind, it's just a matter of if it's been, if it's come to pass or not, but you're eliminating a lot of the testimony of Jesus. So in verse eight here, above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He is taken, taketh away the first that he may establish the second. See the law, he took away the first, right? The original covenant where sacrifices for sins and all the the rituals and everything they had to do was offered over and over and over. It's been disannulled like we looked at a few weeks ago. But he had it disannulled in order to put away sin. So the son of God himself had to be completely obedient to do that. So he could usher in this new covenant where we get the word testament, New Testament, in which you and I live under right now. So he had to do that, and he alone is sufficient to do that. In verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We are, we are sanctified through the offering. Remember, there are three tenses of salvation. Justification, this is all in the Bible. Justification is where you've been removed from the penalty of sin. You've been saved, you've been off the auction block, you are justified and never to be unjustified. That's why Jesus used the phrase, you must be born again. Because you're born again, how could you be unborn? You can't. So because you're born again, you're saved once and for all. Then you start this process of sanctification. And as soon as you get justified, stamped, born again, saved in full, you immediately are on your sanctification process, immediately. And that's why in verse 10 here, he says, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So stay with me here. 
But in the Greek grammatical structure from God here, it shows that those who have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, they're saved and they're in a permanent, continuous state of sanctification. And in the Greek, it's called a perfect participle with a finite verb. And I, I know everyone was really excited to hear that this morning. That's probably why you came here. That's, that's the greatest takeaway, right? No, it's not. But that is, that is the truth in the Greek. It is a perfect participle with a finite verb. So you have been put in a permanent state of sanctification. Even in the way the Lord structured the text, it proves that you can't go backwards and need justification again. That's the point of that statement. So you have been permanently made holy in the sight of God. Permanent holiness. And since you are permanently justified, you are thus in a constant process of sanctification. The question then is, where are you in that process? It's a never-ending process until you die and go to heaven or we're raptured, either way. But what are you still holding on to and what have you not submitted to Jesus? That's the question in the sanctification process. If there is something and the Holy Spirit is tugging on you, that take that step and go home and get in your bedroom, shut the door and get on your knees and lay it before the Lord and start that process of letting him take it off of you. That's the key. Just don't forget in the rapture, God's going to find you doing something. And the question is, what is that? When you die, you're going to be doing something. And what is that? We, I, all of us should have the mindset of we want to be serving him as a doulos, a bond slave to Jesus, so that he finds us worthy. And he, he opens his arms and says, come on home, good and faithful servant. That's what we all want to hear. So in verse 11, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. So they'd offer the same thing over and over, but it solved no problem. Those sacrifices only provided a temporary covering. They never got to the heart of the issue. And in Matthew 5, Jesus illuminates that sin is a heart issue. Remember in the Old Testament, and you, and you hear this on the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus said, surely it's been said, thou shalt not murder. But I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart against a brother, you've already committed murder. Remember, he takes it to the heart issue. Uh, same with adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery, but if you lust after someone else, you've already done it. He, he takes every one of those to the root of the matter, which is the heart. In the Old Testament, it just was this outwardly, okay, don't murder, I'm just not gonna kill someone. But if I have, it never was illuminated that if I was mad at someone, I've already done that. Jesus took it all the way to the heart, and that's why when he, you are born again and you accept him, he gives you a new heart. In Ezekiel, it's three or four times, he says he will give you a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone. That's why you're born again, because it's a heart issue. It's not a surface issue. It's not, a, it's not an issue of actions. It's an issue, issue of where is your heart in the matter? And when he gives you a heart of flesh, you're born again, and you can walk in freedom from that. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, set down the right hand of God. So this starts a quote from Psalms 110, Psalms 110, verse one and on. And I think on the next slide, we're actually gonna read through Psalms 110. So 
I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. From henceforth expecting until his, his enemies are made his footstool. So in verse 13, Hebrews 10, it starts a quote from Psalms 110. So when will Jesus' enemies be made his footstool? That's the question. And you can either stand on the rock that is Jesus now or be crushed under it. That is the difference. And that's as simple as you can make it to a friend or a loved one that's not saved. That is as absolutely simple as you can make it. You are going to stand on him now and trust in his salvation to get you into heaven or you're going to be crushed under it and separated from him for all eternity. That is the truth of the matter. So this is all a fulfillment of Psalms 110 when his enemies are made his footstool. So let's read Psalms 110 here. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. We know what that is. That's Jesus, remember? He is the rod of his strength. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. That day, as we study in Revelation, is the day of the Lord. It starts from the rapture all the way until the second coming of Christ. And it, it's the day of the Lord, his, the day of wrath. Now you see the wrath starts in Revelation 6 when he starts to loose those seals off the scroll, the title deed to take back the earth. Remember, even the kings of the earth say, who is able to withstand the wrath of the lamb? That's how you know it's, it's the wrath of God being poured out. And thankfully, we know from Thessalonians that we're not appointed to wrath as the church. And so that's just another clue that you won't be here if you're saved. So that's when he's going to do what? He's going to strike through kings in the day of his wrath. When he returns from Revelation 19 and he speaks and all of those millions and millions and millions of his enemies have surrounded Jerusalem and he speaks and they just disappear like that. They're gone. He wipes them out. That is when he strikes through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge then among the heathen. He'll set up his throne, the throne of David that was promised, the angel Gabriel promised Mary that her son would sit on the throne of David. He, will, he shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies and he shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. So in verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. See, there it is again, even in the wording. If you're on that sanctification process, that means you've been justified and he's perfected you forever. So you're perfected and justified forever because of who you are in Jesus. So in between your salvation and going to your forever home, you're in that continuous state of sanctification how close are you getting to God? That's the question. And the Holy Spirit indwelling you and convicting you of your sin is trying desperately to conform you more and more to the image of the Son of God. That's, that's the key. The more you read this and wash and renew your mind with the transforming power of the Word of God, 
the more you are like him. And the more you're like him, the closer you get to him. And the closer you get to him, the more you serve him. And the more you serve him, the more you hear from him. It's a constant state of growth in him. And the more you submit to Jesus, study his word, and you abide in him, he's going to illuminate to you facets of your life that you need to clean up. And that's one of my favorite, favorite things from when we started the Bible study seven years ago is when guys that we, we get pretty close in the Bible study to each other and when guys get close to one another and all of a sudden you see someone take studying the word of God very serious and then all of a sudden they, you just see this joy all over them when they walk in the room. You see their countenance change. You see the way they're acting change. You see, all, you see this radical transformation in their lives. Man, there's nothing better. So verse 15, wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness for, to us for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks ago. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah 31 and it's speaking of us, number one, because in the Old Testament, sins had to be remembered constantly, which is why the sacrifice was there. The church, the sin was once, the sacrifice was once and for all, and he remembers them no more. So think about that. God is not going to remember your sins that you have submitted and pleaded for him in. He's, he's paid for it. It's forgotten. So one of the ways the enemy will attack you is to bring those up again in your mind and remind you of, hey, remember what you did 20 years ago or, or three years ago or last Tuesday or whatever? He's, get, he's going to try to bring those back to your mind, right? And he brings them back to try to get you looking back, just like Lot's wife. Don't look backwards. Just like what Jesus said, any man that puts his hand on the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. Jesus wants you looking dead ahead. He's taking care of that. Don't look back at it. And are there things that need to be cleaned up out of it? Maybe, but don't sit in it and let the enemy shame you that you're not worthy of something because of something from your past. That is a lie from the pit of hell and do not accept it. And if those words come up in your mind, you rebuke them in the name of Jesus, you put them down and you say, I am not that person anymore. I've been made whole and born again and you're not gonna lie to me. And you, and you speak the word. Open up the book and start reading Psalms. Do something. That's how you counteract it. And so in verse 18 here, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So since Jesus brought perfection and complete forgiveness from God's perspective, those sins can never be remembered again. That is amazing. Thus, there is no need for the Levitical system that was a constant reminder of sin. That's the point the Holy Spirit's making here. So Jesus is completely sufficient. He alone paid our certificate of debt. So think about this. What are the wages of sin? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That was the wage that was applied to you and I for our sin, the wages of sin. You were serving sin before you're born again, and that wage was death. That's why when it's paid by Jesus, every believer that is in him, 
the Bible speaks of you not dying, you sleep. Because you're going to be awakened to a renewed, resurrected body in him. You don't die. You are never going to die. You're going to sleep and be reawakened by the voice of God. Now that's incredible. So you can have your sin blotted out or your name blotted out of the book of life. It's that simple. So remember, we studied this from Psalms 139 all over the Old Testament. Remember, when someone was against the Lord in the Old Testament, he would say, I've got to blot them out of my book of the living because their name was written there. How can they blot you out if your name's not there? He can't do it. So your name's in the book of life before you were even formed in your mother's womb, and he paid it all for you from Hebrews 2.9. He tasted death for every man. So let him blot out your sin and write your name in the book of life. Trace it in the blood of Jesus. Or if you don't accept him, he has no choice but to blot you out. And this is what the Lord's talking about in Colossians 2.13-15. And you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, having spoiled principalities and powers. Now those are ranks of angels. Remember, we looked at last time how Satan was the one that rebelled against God, the anointed cherub that covered his throne from Ezekiel 28. The angels that rebelled with him, God having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. See, when he saved us, when he paid for you and I, he not only eliminated our certificate of debt, he went down to Tartarus, to the lower parts of the earth in hell. And there's only one spot that talks about that in Peter. And it says in the English that he preached to those angels that rebelled against him. He didn't preach, he declared. That's what that word means in the Greek. He declared victory over them and put them to an open shame. See, you guys thought you were gonna lead this rebellion and take my man with me, with you, but you didn't, you failed. And I'm declaring victory over you and what you're going to do. That phrase in Colossians 2.14, it's representative of a certificate of debt, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. That's a, that's a complex phrase, but what it was back in those ancient times, if you were guilty of something and found guilty by a court, you had to walk around with a sheet of paper in your hand that was your certificate of debt. And until you paid it off, you had to carry it with you everywhere. So that's why if a prisoner would escape, for example, from jail, the prison guard was responsible to pay it whatever that prisoner owed. So that's why when those jail, those jail doors open up and the prison guard's there and freaking out, remember when the angel busted Paul and all those guys free and he's freaking out, Paul's like, hey, hey, don't kill yourself. He's about to fall on his sword and kill himself because it was too much for him to, to bear. He couldn't pay the debt of all those prisoners that were just, the jail doors opened up. And so remember, they were like, no, don't do that. We're all here, nobody's left. Because, they, because of that, he got saved. And that's where we get the phrase today, if you ever heard, he owes a debt to society. That's where we get that phrase, because you would walk around the certificate of debt. 
So Jesus, according to Colossians 2, you and I had a certificate of debt that could never be paid. And so he took it out of your hand and he stamped it, paid in full, and he nailed it to the cross. And that's why on the cross he said, it is finished, to telestai in the Greek. It means paid in full. He did it once and for all so that you and I could walk free. He blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances and finished it all on our behalf. So there are seven priestly contrasts between the Levitical priesthood and our Messiah. Okay, think about this. Many priests versus one high priest. They were standing, but he sat down. They sacrificed daily, but he sacrificed only on one day. Their sacrifices were frequent, but his was only once. They had to offer many types of sacrifices, but he only offered one. They could only provide a temporary atonement, but he offered a permanent eternal atonement for everyone. Those sacrifices could only cover sins. His sacrifice actually takes them. That's the difference. That's the Messiah that we serve. There are eight sacrifices in the Bible as a type of Christ. The penal sacrifices, the substitutional, voluntary, redemptive, propitiatory, reconciling, and efficacious, and revelatory. And I'm sure all of you are going to go home and write down all these verses and study it thoroughly and come back and tell us all about it. But there's the references if you want to go do that. So what are we to do? Right? What are we to do as his people? Christ was once offered, we studied this last time, to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So you and I, as his people, have a responsibility to be watching for the return of Jesus in the rapture to take us home in the air from 1 Thessalonians 4. That is our responsibility. And remember, there's a crown laid up if you're watching, 2 Timothy 4.8. This is one of five crowns in the Bible that's spoken of in the Bible. There's probably an infinite number, but the Lord put five of them in his word to give us a, a concept that there is something waiting for you on the other side of this. There is something, a reward from him waiting for faithful service. For 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. At what day? At the rapture. And not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. Have any of you ever won an award at work? You know, uh, uh, you've, you've done this the best of your group. You sold the most widgets. Uh, maybe it was you showed up every day on time for a year or whatever it is, and you get the little employee of the month plaque up there. I don't know, maybe there's an employee of the month in heaven. I'm not sure, maybe not, but that would be pretty cool. But this is, think about it like that. Okay, you have a responsibility to the king to be serving him. And he's not just gonna say, hey, that was great, come on in and you're, you're just like everybody else here. There's a reward for that. There's a reward for faithful service. There's a reward for chasing after the king. And we're gonna take all of those crowns from Revelation and throw them at the feet of Jesus. Do not show up to the party empty-handed. You will be embarrassed. I'm just telling you. If any of you have ever been to a birthday party and you forgot the gift, you show up and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot that. I did get one though, I promise. It's back at home, I'll, I'll get it to you later. Super embarrassing. So in the, remember in the garden of Gethsemane, 
They were to watch. Matthew 26, 38, then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And then Jesus went away, came back to his disciples and found them sleeping and said unto Peter, what, could you not even watch for an hour? They grew so weary of walking, they stopped watching. And that's the key. You and I are to not grow weary. Keep watching. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So be watchful. This is all over the New Testament. But how can you be watchful if you're not in the word of God? You will not have a screen to filter everything going on in the world if you're not in the Bible. So you've got to be watchful. When you see the world trying to push on the fact that we need a one world government as a solution to what's going on out there, you should immediately think of Revelation 13 and go, oh, I know where this is going. That's where the spirit of the Antichrist is brewing right now. And that spirit's been brewing all the way since Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and left. And so that has been, the, the enemy has been trying to bring on that beast system ever since then. He tried to do it in World War II with Hitler, but Israel wasn't in the land, so it wasn't time yet. And a lot of people that were Bible scholars back then were saying, well, this is it. Hitler's the Antichrist. Well, Israel wasn't in the land, so he couldn't have been. If you would have known your Bible, then you would have been able to look at that and say, okay, it's not time yet. Israel's not back in the land. But that's why it's so important. You've got to get in the word and be watchful and to know the signs of his return, Mark 13, 37. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And when you rightly divide the return of Jesus to gather his people in the rapture versus his return to earth the second time in power, then it makes the entire Bible illuminated for you because you know how to rightly divide and put certain passages in their right category. And thus you'll have complete faith and, and excitement, frankly, that what you're seeing, the Bible's been speaking of all along. So the only way to build that filter and that grid is to be in the word of God. That's it. You've got to build your faith from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's important from Hebrews 11.6 because without it, it's impossible to please him. And how do you get it? Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you've got to do it daily, Acts 17.11. So don't be negligent and build up a bride that is not lukewarm, but is looking for the return of the Messiah to bring us home and to escape the very time of trouble that's going to come upon the whole earth, as Jesus said. So if you need to get to know Jesus, it's really simple. If you're watching this and you're not saved, don't delay any longer. It is so easy. It's the greatest decision you will ever make in your life, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved once and for all, paid in full. Your certificate of debt is nailed to that cross and you don't have to do anything ever again to work your way into heaven. You didn't work your way there and you're not going to work your way out. And all of your sins, though they be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It is that simple. And just know if you're watching this some, sometime and we're not here, uh, the rapture's happened and you can get to know Jesus. 
the exact same way. It doesn't change after the church leaves. It's Romans 10, 9. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for everything that you are doing in our lives. God, we thank you that you are a wartime king. God, we thank you that you alone go and fight for us. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us and give each of us this day the foresight to see what it is exactly that you would have of us tomorrow, this afternoon, next weekend, next year, however much time we have left, Lord, let us keep our eyes focused on you and serving you as a doulos, as a bond slave, willingly in indentured servitude to you forever. Jesus, we thank you that you are the head of the church and we thank you that we, we get to look up as we see the day approaching. Look up for your redemption draws nigh. We thank you, Lord, and we love you for this opportunity. Be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.